how are we going to live and breathe the things that we were advising other companies to do? Because I think a large part of our product was not only helping people set up automation around key parts in the employee journey, but also just educating folks who were new to people ops or maybe had done it for a while, but wanted to feel like they were keeping up with how it was changing. Being able to cogently speak about that meant that we also had to live it. And I wanted to make sure that I felt like that from every every second that we worked there. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today is really a special episode. I had the true pleasure today of sitting down with three extraordinary guests, Alex Hillary, John Wetzel, and Brooke Samay, who collectively are the founders of Gather, a company oriented around a future of work that puts people first and streamlines workflows for people operations teams. Gather was recently acquired by Charthop in March of 2022. Alex is the former CEO of Gather, where he led sales and marketing. John is the former CEO of Gather, where he led product design, customer experience, and operations. And Brooks is the former CTO of Gather, where he led all engineering efforts. As we cover in our conversation, Alex and John previously worked at Boxcast together here in Cleveland prior to working on Gather. And separately, Brooks worked across several industries as a startup engineer in New Orleans before coming here to Cleveland. After successfully navigating Gather to their new home at Charthop, Alex is going back to his roots, building out a community marketing channel, leveraging the assets he had established at Gather, while John is now a senior product manager overseeing Charthop's employee experience, and Brooks is a lead software engineer. In our conversation, which all three founders would like to dedicate to Ari Kedwin and Emily Armando, the Venture for America fellows who joined the Gather team here in Cleveland last summer, and who also have now joined Charthop as well. We cover the full story of Gather from inception through to acquisition and the learnings along the way. As a brief aside before we hop in, and in the spirit of disclaimers, it is worth calling out that I was an investor in Gather and had the real privilege of seeing Alex, John, and Brooks, who all are dear friends of mine, and also two of whom were and are my roommates over the past two years, take Gather from a fledgling idea into a full-blown company. With that aside, back to the, the real story. So when I, when I started Lay of the Land, and I was thinking about who was going to eventually make their way onto the podcast, of my first thoughts were, oh, obviously the Gather crew will be coming on to share their story as it unfolds, and today is that day. So this, this is a, a special episode that I have been looking forward to ultimately for many years now, having shadowed the, the three of you and your journey since inception as roommates, as friends, as fellow Venture for America fellows as an investor in Gather, you know, from the humble beginnings of, of ideation to your new home at, at Charthop. It is a story I've been looking forward to memorializing and sharing. So I wanted to thank you all for, for coming on today to talk about it. Delighted to finally be here, Jeff. Yeah. So this is also the first time where there are three guests on the show. And so I, I think it might be helpful just to start with the three of you as, as individuals um, if you'd like to do a, a brief introduction and and just introduce yourselves here to to the folks listening in, uh, I can kick us off. I'm John. I am the former CEO of Gather and now a, a senior product manager at Charthop. Uh, and I'm Alex. Uh, I am Jeff's roommate, uh, former COO <laughs> of Gather. Now I have joined the uh, the Charthop marketing team. Um, and really, at Gather, I did more of like head of growth sort of role, but officially a COO. And I'm Brooks, a former roommate, friend of Jeff, and now at Charthop, I am a lead engineer. I was a CTO at Gather before we got acquired. Amazing. All right. So we've set the stage and 
I think like like all of these conversations, it's it's interesting and helpful just to to kind of follow the the arc of your careers and interests and ultimately what kind of drew you together in this space. So take us a little bit through your your paths respectively through and to entrepreneurship, and we'll work our way towards towards gather. Yeah. So all of us originally met through Venture for America, which. Jeff, I know you're very familiar with, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are as well. But it's a fellowship program for recent college grads. All of us had various entrepreneurial experiences kind of leading up into that. But Alex and I were working together here at BoxCast, which is, I know you've had Gordon on the podcast before, and uh, one of the great gems of the Cleveland startup ecosystem. So we were working together there, and that's where we met. And then uh, when we started working on Gather, we pulled up Brooks, who was uh, Brooks, I'll, I'll pass that to you to tell your your part of that story. Sure. As John was saying, I did my Venture for America Fellowship in New Orleans. Um, had a very different experience, I think, from the two of them here in Cleveland. But they somehow were able to convince me to leave the warm, beautiful weather of uh, the Gulf South and come <laughs> up to Cleveland to work on this idea. Mostly because you could tell we were onto something. Work was always going to change. Little did we know how dramatically it would and how quickly it would. And I think we all kind of came in with uh, with different mindsets here. I know I remember like back to our early days, like John was saying, like, after BoxCast, I'm going to start my own thing immediately. I was like, I don't need to do that, but I would like to at some point in the first 10 years of my career. I remember, Brooks, you were saying, you're like, I did not envision this as my my next step. So we were kind of all over the place. But kind of rallied around this vision, which at the time period was like a fairly weak vision of just like, we're interested in this future of work, um, remote work, this sort of thing was like a interesting, like future that we were excited about. And we liked working together. So I think that's like, really how stuff got started. I remember back at at BoxCast, John had like been working on some side projects. And like, we'd worked together at work a lot. And I liked working with John a ton. And I just remember coming to him and I'm like, hey, like, can we like work on this thing? In Venture for America, we have these validation challenges, which is like a very specific, like two week sprint time period for like working on a side interest. And I was like, John, like we're both interested in remote work. Like, what if we just like take this on together? And, you know, he'd been working on some other stuff, but like uh, brought me on anyway. And uh we kind of ended up just studying remote work. Like we didn't really even come up with a, a product. We just like talked to, I think it was like 40 different people in the like people operations space to like get their understanding of remote work. And of course that became our eventual market, but that's kind of like how things got started. It was like very casual side project. Like we were just out there talking to people. Yeah. And this is 2018. So this is pre pandemic remote work was not really a thing. It was the very kind of fringe companies that were even allowing it at all. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a pretty interesting time for, for that world. You guys were, were prescient in your, in your vision there. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I want to highlight something really quickly that Alex called out, which was um, I think one of the main reasons, despite us having very different reasons for deciding to become founders, one of the big things to highlight is we just like working together. Uh, never, it cannot be um, stated enough that that's, I think, one of the better reasons to get into a founder, 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 founder relationship. <laughs> um, it is, it is so much like a marriage, and I'm so glad that it was with people that I like spending time with. Now, I, I think it's it is pretty interesting because I think your path is is somewhat deviant from the other paths that I've seen as just a pattern where it's often much more tied to some like conviction very strong up front about a particular problem that that someone is looking to solve. Whereas I remember these conversations that, that you were having with these people is really an exercise in learning and understanding and trying to figure out what the problems to solve even were. And so maybe kind of take us through, you know, what were the questions you were asking? What were you interested in learning? And, and what did you ultimately learn in those early days that kind of brought you to the the founding insights for for Gather? I come from a design background. And so I think about it through a designer's lens of like discovering, going through problem discovery and sort of a design thinking process for those of the people who are familiar with that. But it's really about asking kind of why and getting at the root causes of their their actual problems that they were having. And so I feel like a lot of it was 
A, helping us understand what these people were doing day to day and then understanding their problems, understanding the like why and the root cause of those problems and seeing if there was a, a p- opportunity to, to tackle some of those. Yeah, and I think, you know, what this really looked like was like we, I mean, I think on paper don't have great like founder market fit in this space. We were like really excited about it. And the second we started talking to, you know, really progressive people ops folks, like we were excited about the work that they were doing, wanted to be a part of it. But like, we did not know them like intimately as a persona, like as a buyer. So like very much so like this is a different path than like your usual founder path. And what that required on our end was just like tons of conversations that were like not really targeted. It wasn't vetting out like, you know, can we like build this product that we have in mind in the back of our mind and like ask them questions, like go down the mom test route. But it was more of just like, we want to know like everything about your job and like what you're thinking about when it relates to remote work. And we don't have another agenda in mind, but we're just trying to like learn more about what you're doing and how you approach things. And like, we poked on a lot of different problems, like wildly different problems in these conversations, because like we didn't really have a great insight into like what we were going to be solving. And, you know, I think taking John's design lens, like we truly took all these conversations, had a giant air table of every conversation and every question we asked. Then we took post-it notes, put them up on a, on a wall. And I think we identified, this was like over a several month period and like, like truly hundreds of conversations at this point and um, identified like 10 different kind of pain points that, that were like patterns that had come up. And then we were like, well, you know, uh, this pain point, like not really interesting to us. Like, this one, I remember one we were thinking about at the time. And again, this was like the John's Point 2018, like before pandemic and everything. It was like fully distributed teams, like global teams payroll. Huge issue where like somebody is going to make a lot of money in this over the next 10 years. Turns out now there's like three or four different companies that are like now raised like hundreds of millions of dollars in the past three years since the pandemic on this problem. But like at the time, John and I were like, we don't even begin to know how to solve this problem. It is not within like our skill set. Like we wouldn't know how to approach it. So like, that's a great problem. It's off the table for us. So like, that's kind of how we went through this uh, process to get to the initial like problem solution that we were going around trying to solve. Yeah, the strong conviction that we did have throughout all of that was that remote work was going to change the way fundamentally like work would would work. <laughs> um, and and this was before the pandemic. And before there was like this macro force that imposed it, where, where did your conviction come from before all of that happened? Some of it came from our own experiences at Boxcast. We were allowed to do some flexible remote working and I personally would go and visit one of my closest friends. Who's now a startup founder himself out in San Diego and would be there for like two weeks and would work great hours, would really enjoy it. And was like, this is, a phenomenal way to kind of mix up the way I'm working and it would be a great like learning experience and those kind of things. And so it was like, why would every company not enable employees to do this? There is no change in productivity there. All the things we now know about remote work we were experiencing. And um, the more we dug into it, the more you saw that this was not a like phenomena that was just like subject to us, but this was, there's whole communities around, uh, this sort of idea and people that were were being early adopters of this trend, really. Yeah, so many companies were like, you saw them like sneakily, like expanding their sales and like engineering teams remotely to help them like hire better people. And it's like, that was subtly going on in the back. That, I think that's why it hit so hard during the pandemic. Like why it stuck is because like, this was already happening. And like, at the time, we thought this was going to play out over the next five to 10 years. We thought teams would be hybrid remote, like most teams would be hybrid remote 10 years from now, like knowledge worker teams. And obviously that's sped up faster, but like it was already in the works. And I think from just like a, a mission standpoint too, I think we all kind of resonated. It's part of, I think it's tied into the VFA thing as well. You know, we saw a lot of great things that would come out of going uh, remote. So I think for us, like places like Cleveland that often you have people who grow up here who want to have a great tech career. And you know what? They got to go move to the coasts, right? Because they got to go be in office, have those networks, those sorts of things. Remote work is like opening up. And we see it happening now. It's like all of these people who grew up in Cleveland, like they're coming back to Cleveland because like they don't have to make that choice between where they want to be, their families, their personal life, and their careers. So like 
that's the thing we all, you know, got behind because we saw the impact it could have on, you know, places in middle America, you know, whether it's Cleveland, whether it's rural places, like it was going to have a positive impact that and like the flexibility that remote work can provide and closing some of the, you know, when we think about gender and equity in the workplace, like remote work and the flexibility that provides, like will help those problems too. And so I think that's where we got really into this like idea of this future. And we, we talked to these people ops people that were like a decade ahead of where everybody else was at the time. And they're like, this is what the future looks like. And we're like, we want that vision. Like that is really exciting to us. Like, how can we help? And like, I think that's really the energy and momentum that we got behind as we were, we were starting things. So you, you have these series of conversations, hundreds of people that you're aggregating this information from you, you pull out the patterns, you figure out, okay, these ones we don't, we don't fully understand or don't want to pursue or too hairy of a, of a problem. Where do you ultimately land and what's the direction that, that you choose to head in? What, what was the original vision for, for Gather? Yeah, so the original vision was around collecting inform- and organizing information about uh, people, in particular, like preferences about like the things that they liked or didn't like. Uh, and this was a man- often a manual process that we were seeing an opportunity to, to automate or-, or step in with the technology to at least assist. And the other piece of that was it was all over Slack. We heard resoundingly from people ops folks that they were sending hundreds of Slack DMs manually. And that's one of the, the kind of cross-country or cross-company uh, Slack DMs were something that we wanted to address and solve. So what does the, the MVP of, of this idea look like? How, how do you actually, how do you get started? And from like the, the company perspective, we'll, you know, we'll work our way towards, you know, why Combinator here and how that comes into it. But, but how do you think about the company at this point and, and getting off the ground running? So very initially, it was just Alex and I who were working on this problem and doing some of this discovery. It became very evident quickly that we needed a a true technical co-founder as part of the group. And so we actually flew Brooks up for a little hackathon in Cleveland in the middle of February. Great idea if you want to sell someone on Cleveland. (laughs) Fly them from New Orleans to to Cleveland in February. And uh, and. I'll pass it to Brooks to tell a little bit about like how that that went and uh, and what our initial MVP looked like. Yeah, I mean, I will say this: I hadn't seen snow in a while, so it was a good call. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about that initial MVP and fast forwarding a little bit here, like that version of Gather, I think lasted about six or seven months before we really decided it should be quite a bit bigger. But at that time, you know. Getting an MVP in front of someone was something that we hadn't really done. I think was the biggest engineering it a, a tool that over Slack could collect information was by far our smallest task. It was getting people to actually change the way that they did things to try out our tool that I think stood out as our biggest hurdle. If I were to do that again, I think I would have uh, done it all over Google Forms for the first like couple of months. Instead of spending any engineering time at all, I mean, I think it's something that um, as an engineer, I scoffed at for a long time, but I've since come around on our tools like, you know, Bubble and and Webflow, all all these low code, no code tools, just because there is something to be said for not worrying so much about putting all things into into code and to stone before actually getting it in front of people. But yeah, our, our our initial idea and MVP was very much a glorified form collector over Slack. And you got it out there though and and learned at some point that it had to be bigger than a glorified Google form over Slack. So <laughs> you know what 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 comes next? Yeah, that was one of the interesting pieces was trying to get it in the hands of those first couple people to try it. In particular, one of the challenges we had was the role of people operations. Uh, was a fairly new framing that I think is is continued to take uh, have more and more people kind of take it on and and have it, but at that time, you know, especially in Cleveland, it was mostly just seen as HR. And there were Alex, how many people that showed up in the LinkedIn search for people operations in Cleveland at the time? Oh yeah, it was like eleven uh, in the whole like Cleveland metro area that had like titles wow. of like people or people operations or employee experience versus HR, which is like basically and just quickly like the difference is like. 
kind of an approach. Like if you've got an HR title, your company is probably thinking in a more traditional like HR sense and like HR also, it's not like a full transition, like HR exists, it exists in the future, but it's more of a compliance payroll administrative role versus, you know, people ops is thinking a lot more about employee experience, which is kind of where we fit in. And and like, that was our target customer. And like, not a lot of Cleveland companies at the time were thinking of employee experience, at least in that way. But like on the coasts, that was like blowing up. So definitely a little bit of a challenge us being in Cleveland and not being right next to who we were targeting as our our kind of key customers. (laughs) How much convincing does it take the traditional HR oriented companies to understand what people apps is it's not worth it i think that's what we learned was like (laughs) it it does there's like no it truly the pandemic helps so like the way things have changed we are living in such a like this is 2018 like this is not like we this journey has not not been super long but the way that minds have changed since then is just drastic because like you would go around and like most people like would not understand the value of it mainly because just like the employer employee relationship was very different. Like now we're talking about all of these like crazy, like talent dynamics that just like did not exist back then. And people are like, Oh shoot. Like these employee experience things like do matter. And like, I'm losing people like crazy. I can't attract new people. Like, and now that's like become a lot more widespread, but at the time it wasn't. And like, there's no degree of convincing. You can go to like business leaders who don't think about it that way and be like, yes, invest in this like extra thing because your employees should be happy. Like that's not, that's not a winning argument. (laughs) Like, so I think, you know, very early on we realized like we need to be targeting the people that already believe this and saying we have a product to help these people. I'll add that. I think initially we really thought about um, it from the perspective of employee retention. That was our that was our main wedge for quite a while. It was like you use a product like ours, and you'll be able to keep people from deserting your company or leaving. You know, after you put so much effort and time and work into it, and that angle helped us have a lot of our initial conversations. But again, as I was saying, it, you can't really change someone's mind with that, because especially if they think that the job a job is a gift that they give to their employees. Um, and that they're lucky to have, as opposed to one that is always, uh, as opposed to like an ongoing negotiation that is just, it's, that takes just as much work from you, the employer, as it does from the employee to maintain. So the pandemic and the ideas of the great resignation, I think, made it so we didn't even have to talk about it. It's just implicitly understood that these things mattered, which I gotta say, felt great to be validated so quickly. <laughs> Just like extraordinarily validated by the state of the world at at that time. And um, yeah, so with that initial product, we we rolled it out to about ten companies and had like struggled to the point to get that and learned pretty quickly that it was just moderately useful at that. <laughs> uh, like and and wasn't something that they were willing to pay for. Uh, when we got to the point of like, okay, let's have you try all this. And then trying to get to the point of like, hey, is this valuable enough to pay for? The answer was was pretty resoundingly no. And so this was kind of towards the end of of 2018, and we we had to figure out, you know, what was going to be that next step that was a little bit of a bigger, more convincing, more powerful, and also more useful uh, tool and, and vision for them to get behind. Yeah, I think that was 20, 2019. So that was when we sorry. were in. Uh, yeah, we were at that point. So we had like built the initial product out, got into the Venture for America accelerator, which was here in Cleveland at the time. So we were kind of in that accelerator. We'd gone full time, left our jobs to like work on Gather. And then it was within that context that we were like, oh, our product's not really sellable. Um, so that's that's about where we were, we were sitting at, at that moment. A good learning. Part, yeah. of, the, <laughs> part of the journey. That's the, uh, the business these companies succeed with is, is rarely the business they were, they were founded on understanding and and learning this, right? What is the the bigger vision that y'all came away with and kind of rallied around going forward? Ultimately we rallied around this concept of key moments in the employee journey, onboarding, birthdays, work anniversaries, offboarding, parental leave, that are key places where the employee employer can actually interject a little bit of, 
process, usually communication and coordination, task management, things like that. And there's a lot of it that goes on, especially, you know, during the, the things like onboarding. And so we identified that as a key place that we were going to center our product around. And we were going to build tools to help them design those experiences and processes and then deliver them over Slack. And so we built our, our pitch kind of around that towards the end of 2019 and pitched at several events and actually were, were pretty successful with this pitch that we had developed around employee moments and how it could help with retention and what it could do for employers. One, two big checks, which I think is like every entrepreneur's like dream that one time you get this massive check that you get to hold, uh, even if it's not like worth physically, that much. physically, physically large, large check. check. Yeah, not actually monetarily <laughs> large. I mean, monetarily large enough. Yeah, yeah it's pretty good. good. It was pretty good for a yeah. competition. Yeah, yeah, and and so one of those was was Brooks went out to the West Coast and pitched to in a people ops tech competition, which there the fact that something like that existed was awesome, and the fact that we like placed in it and and one was a really like validating experience for us but i think initially validating by someone external to kind of our own network locally and that's kind of one of the first things that were like hey this is on to something it resonated with all the customers we had validated it with as well and that gave us enough conviction to kind of build a product around uh, around that so we scrapped all of our old code completely started brand new, new tech stack, totally different setup and started out on, on building what is uh, the current gather product. Mm. And that, that sounds like a, a more expensive endeavor ultimately. So I, I know you had won some of these, these pitch competitions, but from a funding standpoint, what, what did that look like? Yeah, we had just been funded through grants and then we actually got our first investment that was actually from Venture for America, which was very cool. And so that gave us enough funds to where we were able to like look at the three of us and kind of say like, hey, can uh, like how, how long can this like last us for? And and we <laughs> we basically said collectively, this is enough money for us to like to, to like be scrappy. And I think that's where living in Cleveland actually was really useful was our cost and overhead was really low. And so we were able to build for, we committed to building through the rest of 2020 and, and seeing what kind of customer traction we could get and what like funding might then come from that period of time. And so of course the, the kind of time period here, John's talking about this decision we made in like January, February, 2020 of what the year 2020 was going to look like. And then 2020 uh, changed on us. <laughs> yeah. So I think from there, after we had gotten some of that money, a little bit from VFA, a little bit from KPOR, they were the ones who had run the pitch competition. They were able to say, yeah, we can we can eat and live off this. Good. So let's start thinking about our next move. And I think that's something we learned from doing um, the Venture for America Accelerator, which in many ways is a pre-accelerator. They spend a lot of time just kind of orienting, orienting you around the what it looks like to be an entrepreneur. Um, we decided that our next best bet would be to probably do a bigger one. We were, I remember we were looking very closely at Techstars and YC. We were very sure we had no chance at either. But it was super important to us that we had at least apply because we had been told by friends and mentors, you have to get your name out there so that you would be, so that you know for later applications, they would know who you are, they'd be able to see your traction, progress, what have you. And I think a lot of the things that we talked just talked about, about how work was changing, were really resonating then. Our interview, when was, was our interview after? Things this, was, this was a month after the pandemic started. So like we had gone like heads down building out the product through March of 2020. Right as we were trying to launch it with our pilot customers, the pandemic hit. We kind of just like went back heads down for six more weeks while our customers were like, figuring out how to transition to remote work because of course it's the people ops people who were like leading that charge and then also applied to accelerators during that time period where so these things you know became a lot more you know they resonated with people and then it turned out that like the world wasn't going under economically and actually startups were going to start hiring again and you know they were going to have to figure out how to do it remotely so it turned out to be an interesting time where like for the moment it seemed bad and then by like later that spring, it was actually looking like we were in a really good spot because we'd just done a bunch of studying of like how to do remote onboarding. And then next thing you know, like every company is trying to figure that out. So we were in a, in a good spot there. And I think, you know, we were like 
lucky in that timing. Um, something I'll say about the YC app. So YC, we ended up getting into it like well before we expected to off of this product we'd built. We'd had like 10 companies sign up as pilots at that point. And uh, one thing I'll say about the YC process that like people ask about a lot, like we got lucky in that we got read by the right partner who was a former founder who had had this exact pain point that we were solving for. And he's like, oh, I get this totally. And like, that's how we got in. We would talk to other partners at YC later on in the process. And they're like, I don't get this at all. Like, and we're like, if they read our application, like totally wouldn't have gotten in. So I just like always, you know, we got really lucky getting in the first go. There's a whole lot of luck in the process. Who reads your apps? Those sorts of things. And that's like what I always say about that process. But regardless, we got into YC. And so we were headed to... um YC in, in summer of 2020. Through that, we, we actually like holed up in the basement of an Ohio City office and went to work at uh, like, that was YC for us. Normally it's an in-person accelerator, but like we made our own little YC in, a, in a, a office in Ohio City, which was fun. So I know they, they always, you know, push you to think big about what you're doing coming out of the accelerator, how, how does the, the YC experience change the trajectory of, of Gather? Pretty dramatically, I'd say. You know, we came into this and we weren't even sure, you know, at the time whether we wanted to go down. Like, we were pretty skeptical about the full VC path. We knew an accelerator would be helpful. You know, we did not necessarily, like, we weren't going to say no to YC, but we also were like, did not have the vision of like going out, raising a ton of money from West Coast VCs, which is like what YC is good for. And so I think that, you know, that whole time period, we're like thinking about like, okay, what kind of company do we actually, you know, want to build? And so I think we, we wrestled with that a lot that summer as we were going through it. I think YC was great in a lot of ways. It like pushed us to monetize. I mean, it really got a lot of fire behind us that I don't think, you know, I think we would have been a little bit more hesitant on our own you know, just first time founders, I think any time you've got people behind you who know what they're doing, putting fire behind you is like, always very helpful. You know, we didn't have, you know, we had these pilots signed up and like, nobody was paying yet. And they're like, come back here, like, from for day one, we want you to have paying customers, like go get them paying now. And like, those sorts of things really helpful. But, you know, I think we did work through like, funding and like, what are we trying to do with that? And, and up through YC demo day, like we were still kind of, Figuring that out, we ultimately decided we wanted to raise a smaller round than like most of our bash mates. We were initially going to go for like 300k, 500k kind of target. We we like settled. We like negotiated with our partner. He's like, you got to get it up higher than that. Like everybody else is out here raising like three or four million dollars, but like we hadn't chosen our trajectory yet. So I think you know a lot of those things like we were we were thinking through. Ultimately, went to demo day and still like kind of pursuing more of a pre-seed like angel round coming out of YC, but, you know, still targeting, like had the YC energy behind us and seeing all these other great founders with us. And like, we were like, okay, we got to grow faster. We got to do, you know, move faster, monetize faster, learn faster. I think that's what YC was really good for, for us. It also was a big unlocker from a perspective point of view. I think that we had a certain understanding of what it meant to grow a B2B SaaS startup. I mean, that's like the kind of the category that we're operating in. And that comes with it, like an understanding of what metrics you should be shooting for, how you should be operating, those sort of things. And YC gave us an exposure to just so many more companies, both in the early stage and some of their companies that are a few stages ahead to really give you a better perspective of like, what is the actual startup landscape look like rather than just kind of this narrow slice that we had experienced through our own experiences and even through our like friends experiences in in venture for America. Yeah. And I think also I'll just say that coming out of YC and having that kind of win behind us really leveled us up just mentally. I recognizing that, Oh, maybe we can, maybe we can just do this and say, we're going to do all the things that we want at a time scale that we couldn't expect just because that's what everyone else was doing, at least in our budget. But like, there's something I think to be said just for surrounding yourself with builders, that energy is incredibly infectious. 
Yeah, because I felt like we didn't know what we were doing, but then we saw all of these people that were getting these like tech crunch, but like everybody that was like big name in the early stage startups, like we saw behind the hood and or like under the hood and we're like, oh shoot, they don't know what they're doing either. We're just like them. We can also do this. Like, <laughs> hmm. Yeah, there is, a, there is a lot of that winging it as you go, but with, with the confidence and that, that wind behind you. Because ultimately, you guys got that kind of, of traction and, and attention as well coming out of it. Absolutely. I don't remember if it was a TechCrunch article, but right, something. Yeah, we had a TechCrunch article published on us. Uh, I mean, the and, and just the confidence boost that you get from like being able to use that stamp where immediately when you're talking to someone, you're not like, hey, yeah, we're this little startup. We're just beginning, you know, whatever. That doesn't convince anyone that you're legitimate at all. They don't want to yeah. open the door. They don't think that you're going to be delivering anything of value. But you use that YC stamp, and it was it was often a really good way to open doors that otherwise might have been closed to us. So that's something that we definitely um, got from it, and we're we're lucky with. Yeah, the, the reality is signaling matters so much, and like we're all first time founders, right? And we're all young, and like like I said, like we didn't have a great like founder market fit. And we're from Cleveland, which like, say what you want, but like, if you're on the West Coast, like they're not going to take you as, you know, like anybody that's starting a company here, you'll, you'll feel that like, they don't take you as seriously, like you're in Cleveland, what would you know about people ops? Do they even have people ops in Cleveland? The answer is no. But having the YC stamp on us, like, all of a sudden, we could get conversations with like, a bunch of other people, because it's like that credibility stamp that we needed. So, you know, whatever it is, like, that's, that's something that was helpful for us. I would say it even helped in Cleveland too, not just talking to people who are external to the city, but having that outsider stamp made us, I think, more of a landmark company here. I, I'm sure it gets the, the flywheel going. I know from a, a product sales scaling perspective, at that point, you're starting to bring on a lot more customers kind of in parallel. Alex, I know from the community building side, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on, on that as kind of, ultimately something that I don't know how, if you think of it as like a product, but like what, what that ultimately came in, in parallel and relationship together and, and just kind of the, as we work our way towards ultimately, you know, an acquisition by, by chart hop, what, what are the, the things that are happening over the next year and a half, two years that, that, have, that have gotten you to the point where, you know, gather is, is, is acquired. Yeah, so kind of moving the story along a little bit, right? We raise money following YC. We um, hire on an engineer and a head of community, which we've decided like from a like growth route, we're going to really lean into community marketing because that's like a lot of you know how we've seen people work in our space in the in the people ops HR space. There's a lot of like you get referrals from your friends. HR tech creates like, you know, these spaces where people can talk and like put their brand behind it. And so like, we saw that as kind of our, our growth path. So, you know, we come out of that, we've got a handful of customers at that point. So we're starting to build out our growth functions, which are like very content marketing driven, which is like my background. Uh, and then we brought on this head of community as our, our fifth person to, you know, build out this basically like community go to market arm, which is a kind of scary thing because it's a, a longer term investment. Like that doesn't play out right away. But I will say by, you know, six or seven months after YC, that was going strong and like really helping us be a scrappy team, like getting a bunch of demos, like getting recognition within the space and, uh, and that kind of thing. So it was, um, I guess, kind of unique at that size to be building out that kind of function. But it was, it turned out to be a really helpful thing when we didn't have, you know, we weren't able to go hire like a couple salespeople and then have a marketing person doing something separate. So it was a, a cool approach. And then I'll let y'all tackle it from the, the product side, what we're doing during that time period. Yeah. So after YC, we kind of had a, a product that was definitely sellable, had a couple like small gaps, but really was providing the core value that we wanted to provide. And that was something that YC kind of pushed us to achieve. And so at that point, it was it was just building up the product and then the functionality and rounding out the, the edges. One example in that is in order to, to use Gather, we need to know who all the employees at the company are and when, say, they're starting or when their work anniversaries or birthdays are. Those are key information for us. And originally like during YC that was all just like a CSV upload one time 
that was kind of the MVP way to do it. And then we had to incorporate like real integrations into their HR platforms. And that, that kind of started happening in the, the later half. And that was one of the big like unlocks for us to start selling even more. Cause that would be something that every, everyone would always ask is like, Oh, do you integrate with like ADP or with rippling or with gusto? And those were, were key uh, steps for us. So one of the, the things that I'm quite curious about is as part of the company building process, as you're, you're growing the organization and selling something in the, the space of people operations is how you were thinking about people operations internally as, as, you, as a company and how, how you tried to hold yourself to a standard as thought leaders in the space. You know, what was that process of as first time founders, like learning how to build a company and selling a product that helps companies, you know, facilitate, become better at, at the people operations uh, experience. What, how, how are you navigating that? I like to think about it a lot through, we like learned how to do people ops through osmosis. And it was just like by surrounding ourselves by with the people who were also doing people ops and, and then trying to put it into practice ourselves was a very interesting experiment. We were certainly, I'm sure, much, much more thoughtful about it than your typical like startup, you know, and that started with our our hiring process when we built out, you know, to hire our first few employees, like we had a full blown, like laid out hiring process. It certainly wasn't perfect, but like we put a lot of, a lot of thought and effort into making it good and equitable and those sort of things. And that translated then into the onboarding experience that we tried to build. As well as it was a great opportunity to like dog food our own product, which is super fun and interesting and uh, led to some good learnings and, and output there. Yeah, we were like a five person and then an eight person team, like conducting onboarding like we were like an 80 person team, like the companies we were selling to. It's like definitely overkill, but like worth it for the dog fooding and like we couldn't not do that <laughs> and not go like build out this like really great program because then it would feel very disingenuous to, uh, to the product and, and what we were advocating for. Yeah, that echoes what I was going to say. I think that more than anything, we probably were paralyzed by the realization that we can't have bad people ops if we're a people ops company. Anytime that we wanted to change or add to our process, it was thinking so much about the future of Gather and like, how are we going to live and breathe the things that we were advising other companies to do? Because I think a large part of our product was not only helping people set up automation around key parts in the employee journey, but also just educating folks who were new to people ops or maybe had done it for a while, but wanted to feel like they were keeping up with how it was changing. Being able to cogently speak about that meant that we also had to live it. And I wanted to make sure that I felt like that from every, every second that we worked there, worked there. And people ops is hard, right? It's like, I, of, of all the, the founder journeys and, and uh, experiences, people come back to hiring, retaining people as like the hardest part of the company building process, like Absolutely. irrespective of what it is that they are building, that people are the hardest part of it. People are complicated, man. They're, they're really tough. I think, I mean, I coming from an engineering background. It's like, I would always think about that as we were going through our hiring process. I was like, man, I'm spending more time thinking about like these candidates that we're looking at or like our employees today than I am about actually building. And it was still time well spent, even though it felt like if I had asked myself that, you know, a year before I started together, like that's probably not where I would think I'd spend most of my time. And I think just kind of bringing it back to the ideas of like, yeah, after people went remote, we didn't have to start convincing them that these things mattered. A lot of people were feeling that, a lot of companies were feeling that just realization that this is going to be the hardest thing that I do. And it really helped elevate on people ops teams and people ops leaders at a time when I think they didn't have as much power. With our own people ops, we also had the opportunity to explore some kind of new concepts that maybe our people ops folks were trying out or we saw as kind of the newest things in the industry. Uh, I think about some of our like our engineering hiring process, for example, our last few candidates, we all did paid projects with where we brought them on to do a paid thing. And, you know, that that was a significant resource like uh, that for us to give up at that time. Like we were like, do we really pay these people? Like we don't have that much cash in the bank. 
but we as a as founders felt that that was super important to pay people if they were going to do work for you uh, even if it was example work in a interview process and that was a value that we wanted to like hold ourselves to and did throughout that process even if it was like you know you cringed a little bit as a as someone that was already watching you know your your burn rate very closely yeah we had a, a holiday policy that was uh, fit for for people internationally so you could actually choose your own international holidays that you personally would want to recognize as opposed to having a set number of company or set exact company holidays so certain things like that 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 were a little bit more on the edges and would be harder to advocate for at a larger company if we were just a employee that wanted to create that policy and and roll it out. Hmm. If if we look at the 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 flip side of that coin, you know, externally, how did you hold yourself accountable? What what were the measures of success? How are you kind of gauging the the efficacy of of gather out there? Do you mean in the, in the view of our customers or of our yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes it was in terms of like, what did their, how did their day-to-day change? Because we were automating a lot of the the tasks, we were looking at it through the lens oftentimes of the people ops person. And what did their life kind of before gather look like versus after gather? Oftentimes it was like, yep, every time I have a new hire, I send them an email. And then I set a reminder to myself on my calendar to send them this other email three days later. And those sort of things like, oh, yeah, I don't have to do that anymore. And I can support, you know, bringing on like 12 new hires every two weeks without having to like pull my hair out of like all these manual tasks that I'm doing. And so honestly, it's not like quantitative, but the qualitative feedback of those uh, people ops coordinators, especially to, you know, describing their life before and after gather was the most gratifying thing as a as a product builder to to receive that feedback. And and the way we kind of also looked at like embeddedness in our customers is like ultimately like we're a workflow builder product for people operations, right? So they'd build their onboarding workflow with us. What was really cool to see is like when they built like maybe an onboarding and like a work anniversary workflow. Well. Did they go on and like, did they find those successful and did they go on to build other workflows? And, you know, to see a lot of our customers start to, you know, start with like two or three workflows and then expand and they truly were building out workflows across their whole entire employee experience using Gather. Like that was really awesome to see because I think that was the the big vision coming together was like, you know, we're not just an onboarding tool, you know, we're not a simple birthday and work anniversary reminder tool, but we are like this flexible communication and coordination tool for the people ops person across whatever they have to build for. And so I think that's really when we saw, you know, people using us for everything, that's where we knew like we were making a big impact in that workspace. So we're we're talking about gather in the in the past tense as it has ceased to exist as, as an organization in an exciting development and acquisition to to Charthop. So I'd love to just hear the story of of Gather's destination. And, and new home. Yeah, so ChartHop is a people analytics platform, uh, but they do much more than that. They're also uh, help companies with headcount planning and org design and compensation planning. We originally had heard about them because we were pitching an investor. They said, hey, I think a, this one of our portfolio companies would be a really good integration for y'all. They have a kind of core source of truth because Charthop brings in this information and aggregates it as a as a people analytics company. And so they provide a really good base layer of like, what is that employee data? And that was one of the issues that I mentioned earlier that was pretty fundamental to what we were doing at Gather. And so um, that led to uh, ultimately a conversation with the Ian White, who's the CEO of, uh, of Charthop. Yeah, and I think... At this time, so now we're talking, we've fast-forwarded some more, companies continue to grow. We're actually in a, in a great spot, like the same month that we initially had the first conversations with Ian, which was November uh, 2021, um, was actually our best growth month of all time. Like we were hitting a lot of our metrics and like in a really good place from a, a company standpoint. But I think assessing, I think coming back to that same question of like, how big of a company is this that we're building? Can we be that fully like, you know, VCs want to see a path to being a $10 billion company right now. And like, you got to connect those dots. And it's like, 
you know, realistically, are we going to be that platform and what will that take to become that platform? Those were some questions we were thinking about while our business was doing really well, while we were growing a lot, and while we were having these conversations, starting these conversations off with with Chart Hop. So like there was a lot of stuff that we were thinking through it at this point. And yeah, I think, you know, started those conversations and just kept getting better. And, you know, I think from a product standpoint, it was just like a really good fit. And then you get further into the conversations and then you're realizing from a people standpoint, it's a really good fit from a mission and value standpoint is a really good fit. And like start to weigh these things beside, you know, alternative options. I think one thing that Chart Hop really stands out in my mind is doing very well is recognizing the complexity that is people operations and all the things that they're in charge of. Gather from its very first iteration was always thought of as something that would have to be very flexible because we wanted to match employee cultures. We wanted to be able to say that this isn't a out-of-the-box tool that's going to help you do onboarding in one specific way. It's going to help you do your onboarding or celebrate birthdays in the way that you care about or even thinking about offboarding in a way that's suitable for your particular company situation. Chart Hop from its very first iterations um, has always focused on making sure that any company that uses them can configure it and build an analytics platform that actually helps them make the decisions they need to. And when we think about things like headcount planning, compensation planning, those are really sensitive subjects. How many people are you, how many people at your company? How much do you, how much are they going to get paid? That looks like that can be very different. And it's not something that I think a lot of companies really talk or share a lot about, at least between each other. So being able to handle all of these different types of kind of company playbooks was very similar to our own ethos. And I think it made it clear to me from a builder standpoint, like, okay, if we join this larger team, we'll still be able to build out the vision that we had for Gather, which was a tool, which is a workflow builder that at every single point in the employee journey could have an impact, um, no matter the kind of company that you are, large or small. I think that's something we're really grateful for in this acquisition is just the opportunity to keep working on the same problems that we were working on before. I think, you know, unless you get really, really far in building a company, there's there's definitely at least for for me, there was this notion of like unfinished business where we had 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 some impact on some people and gotten some of that positive validation I talked about earlier, but we hadn't seen the large scale impact or a change to all people ops and all HR departments that we really wanted to to bring about because they are still dealing with tools that are our legacy. They're years behind what their colleagues in sales and marketing have. And that's one of the problems we originally identified, and it hasn't changed in the last like four or five years. And at Chartop, we're going to have the opportunity to solve that problem at scale, which is really, really, really exciting. One of the more macro topics I w- I've been curious to get your perspective on is ha- having had the foresight on remote work and you know maybe not <laughs> predicting COVID in its in its entirety, but but that it was coming uh, and in a, a timely fashion. What are the the other areas of people operations where it's happening, and and maybe it'll take a, a you know a, a catastrophic catalyst to to move the needle? But but where where what is the future of people ops, and and what are the companies that are innovating the best in the space doing right now that that will put them ahead uh, in terms of the that employee experience? I'm just thinking of. Um... A picture of John's face on the internet right now that says, "This man predicted remote work." Here's what he says is coming next. <laughs> yeah, tell us, oh, John. What's coming next? What is coming next? Most <laughs> um, about your LinkedIn post that you've queued up around this topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think what's in some ways coming next is people ops and the people who are working in it. I think the role is just shifting so much that one of the changes that I hope comes is, is actually more people coming from other roles and organizations into people operations and viewing it as a strategic center and understanding what that can drive in terms of business value. So one of my favorite like new sayings is that like people operations is the new product management. Like product management didn't exist 10 years ago. It took like the the era of like 2010 to or to 2020 like is when the role of, of product management like came into existence in its like popularity in, in kind of the tech world. 
I see the same thing happening with people ops and employee experience. And so, you know, it's not necessarily a, a tech play, but more a how companies are viewing this role, how they're deploying it across their organizations is changing in a, a massive way. So if you're considering it, switch into people operations if you're not in it already, because I think <laughs> there's a, a new wave of, of folks joining in. The, the most fascinating thing in my mind right now that's happening is just the change in employer-employee relationship and how the power dynamics has like completely swapped like for the first time ever. And like employee, like a knowledge worker company, well, any companies right now, like employees have the power and how that just changes everything about like business decisions. And like, we're just beginning to get into that world. And like, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So I think that just has like tons of ramifications on like the future of work and what that looks like. And we're just beginning to explore that. I think nobody's actually figured out remote work still. Like you've got so many of these tech offices that haven't made real decisions yet. And we haven't gotten into this post COVID world fully yet. Like we've been saying this for forever, but like people still haven't figured this stuff out. Nobody actually, I don't think anybody knows at their companies two to three years from now, whether they're going to be hybrid remote, like, or like what way they're going to be hybrid or remote. Like, None of these things have been figured out. So like those, those like problems are all in front of us. And like, there's so many opportunities for solutions to like figure out what that future of work actually could look like. So I, it's just, that's such a fun space to be in right now. Like, cause everything's changing so quickly. Yeah. I'll say that. Um, I think that from the perspective of what best practices are, like we, one of the things that we did really early on was we um, built up something called the people operations playbook. It was supposed to be focused around tactical advice for people ops teams so that they could like get cracking quickly and also just be a good introduction or gather as before having to try our product. I think something that we saw time and time again was like people op, as John is implying, like people ops is an emerging industry an emerging like category of work that doesn't have a playbook, not in the way that for me, like software engineering has things like agile where it's like there are ways and like thoughts about how good people ops should be structured where like, in comparison to good engineering. And I, I see that as being what one of the next steps is thought leaders really organizing around broad sweeping ideas that can be applicable at um, different types of companies that are, are the actual basis of what, you know, good employee experience is. It's a little bit more defined and a lot less amorphous. So I want to maybe bookend the, the conversation here with some some learnings and and reflections on on the whole process having you know, gone gone from zero to to exit here. You know, what are what are the things that that you've taken with you? And you know, maybe a a framing to this question could be, you know, what what matters to you as part of this process that we haven't necessarily talked about yet. The first word that comes to mind for me is naivety. Naivete. Like we were so naive when we were starting this business, but at the same time, I don't know that I would have been less naive had I not tried to start the business. You know, I'm sure there would have been other ways to to go about some of this learning, but I do think a lot of it is was just the time and space spent trying to to do this, trying to fundraise, but uh, trying to get a, a product in a customer's hands for the first time. All so many things I would change about doing it now, but I don't know that I would ever have learned them without just doing and and trying them for the first time. Yeah, ton of ton of learning along the way. Kind of to John's point, like we we didn't know what we were getting into going into the process. Like we, it took us so much longer to learn every aspect than like. And I think this is just the thing about being first time founders. Like you just don't get it, and then the next time around, you're like, oh shoot, I know how to avoid like all of these things. You know that will potentially come up because I've been through it before. I think I'm. I'm really excited about like the journey we went through and it was, you know, a three year experience for us, but like, it's nice to see it from beginning to end because I can now assess that, you know, whenever the next time comes, like I w I've learned things across like every aspect of this. Like, I mean, even through the acquisition, you learn, you know, in the very early days, you're figuring out like, okay, what things do I really need to do very well right now? And like, setting up our operations and stuff and what stuff can I give away with? Like, cause you can't do everything well. So you're like, what things matter and what things don't. Well, you go to the acquisition side and you see like 
you know, what lawyers are looking at and like what actually matters and like how a company assesses your value. And then you're like, oh, shoot, like I, I like now understand like how I should have been prioritizing things earlier on, how I should have been setting us up structurally, um, all those things. So I think I'm like very grateful to have gone through this process in a short period of time and to have seen it beginning to end because I think, you know, I'm excited for, for the next time around and like all of those learnings because you do learn so much so quickly. I'll say that I think one thing I've noticed coming through this whole process is that some of our not necessarily our like, best decisions and that they were most, most well thought, but the ones that paid off the most were the ones that I think came from a place of going full force. Earlier, we talked a little bit about going into YC and not necessarily knowing we were fully in on the VC path and kind of waffling there. And I think that from that angle, if we had decided to either not do it at all or go all the way in, I would have felt better about that decision. And on the flip side of that, our decisions around some of like the product that we built early on, I remember there was this one moment in YC where like, we need to build this specific thing for one specific customer. And we've gotten all this advice that you never do that. You, everything has to be scalable and built out for everyone. And we were just like, okay, but we haven't sold, really sold, we haven't made any money yet. So we're going to do this anyways. And I think that was one that was one of our zero to one moments where we landed a big client because we did what they asked us to do. Um, and in some ways, and for a short time, that was all that mattered. And we just went all in and didn't think about it that hard. So that's why the caveat is not always like the most thoughtful decision. But as a founder, making sure that you actually go all in and really decide if you're going to do something, trust your gut fully um, is my biggest learning. Second time around. I'm going to be much more intense. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's awesome. Well, our, our closing question for, for everyone on the show is for not necessarily your favorite thing in, in Cleveland, but for something that other folks may not necessarily know about. A hidden gem, if you will. So with that, we'll go around the horn here and, and unearth your hidden gems. Yeah, so my hidden gem is in Cleveland, I think is a experience, uh, which is the experience of riding a hundred miles on your bike in a circle all around Cleveland, around the full Emerald necklace. Um, I've, I've been able to do it twice and we started kind of in the downtown area every time we've done it early in the morning and you're, you're riding out East as the kind of sun is rising up over the lake and it's majestic. And then right as the sun is kind of Coming up, you're riding through like Gates Mills area down in the valleys, and there's the the dew on the uh, grass is starting to steam. And um, I enjoy the heck out of the fact that you can make a complete loop on almost exclusively parks in Cleveland, um, and it's just a wonderful uh, way to to see all parts of the the city. So, would recommend uh, that if you are if you're able to to accomplish it. For me. I definitely, I consider myself a Metro Parks connoisseur and um, <laughs> I, I have like a ranking of all, eight, like all 18, all my favorite ones. Brecksville is my favorite and I like this area around Ottawa Point in Brecksville Reservation. That's probably my favorite like area of Metro Park and my, my like hidden gem hack is there's a lot of great all-purpose like trails all around the metro parks and like those are great for all the reasons john just said about like biking and stuff but bridal trails are some of the best like hiking and walking around the metro parks um which obviously they're mainly built for horses but i have spent dozens of hours like running and walking on these trails and like never seen a horse but you can get into some spots especially in braxville where like you really i mean you're in the cleveland suburbs but like you feel like you're in the woods and you don't feel like anybody's around you. And I, that's a nice thing to feel like 20 minutes away from your like Cleveland house. Oh, mine's not nature related. I'm just shout out two places. One, Brittany's record shop. They have the best collection of vinyls I've seen in a long time. Two, I really like roller skating. There, are, I've been to a lot of, this place is technically a chain, but to me, they're Cleveland special. The United Skates of America. Wonderful name, wonderful place to roller skate. Would recommend to all. Oh, there it is. We just got to get some roller skates and do the emerald necklace. <laughs> 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 
Okay. All the gems. We'll see you there. <laughs> well, Alex, John, Brooks, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing the the story uh, and and journey over the the last few years. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeff. If folks have anything they would want to follow up with you about, what is the the best way for them to do so? LinkedIn. John's a LinkedIn influencer, so find him there. <laughs> LinkedIn's and great. Me. You can also reach all three of us at hello at teamgather.co. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.